So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in a chariot as his second in command. And the people shouted before him, Make way! Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but without your word no one will lift hand or foot in all Egypt. Pharaoh gave Joseph the name zaphnath paneah and gave him Asenath, daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, to be his wife. And Joseph went throughout the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from Pharaoh's presence and traveled throughout Egypt. During the seven years of abundance, the land produced plentifully. Joseph collected all the food produced in those seven years of abundance in Egypt and stored it in the cities. In each city, he put the food grown in the fields surrounding it. Joseph stored up huge quantities of grain, like the sand of the sea. It was so much that he stopped keeping records because it was beyond measure. Before the years of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph by Asenath, daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said, It is because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. The second son he named Ephraim and said, It is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. Sometime later, Joseph was told, Your father is ill. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, along with him. When Jacob was told, Your son Joseph has come to you, Israel rallied his strength and sat up on the bed. Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan, and there he blessed me and said to me, I am going to make you fruitful and increase your numbers. I will make you a community of peoples, and I will give this land as an everlasting possession to your descendants after you. Now then, your two sons born to you in Egypt before I came to you here will be reckoned as mine. Ephraim and Manasseh will be mine, just as Reuben and Simeon are mine. Any children born to you after them will be yours, and the territory they inherit will be reckoned under the names of their brothers. When we think of the matriarchs in the family line of Israel, we're most likely to think of Abraham's wife, Sarah, or Isaac's wife, Rebecca, or one of Jacob's wives, Rachel or Leah, maybe both. I doubt that we think about Asenath, the Egyptian wife of Joseph. To be fair, she, she's a minor character in the story. She appears only in a few verses. And as is often the case with female characters in the Bible, she's depicted as an overwhelmingly passive character. She doesn't speak. She doesn't act. She is given to Joseph as a wife by Pharaoh. We are not privy to her thoughts or her willingness or her excitement at the prospects of marriage. We know nothing. We can assume that in this cultural context, marriage is a good thing, but we don't know much beyond that. In fact, in the second story that we uh, heard a few moments ago, after she has been given to Joseph and after she has birthed two sons, we learn that her children are given to her father-in-law, Jacob. He claims them for himself. 
in this story, Asanat, she doesn't even seem to be present. She's not saying anything and she might not even be there. And moms, just kind of dive into this story for a second and play along with me. I know you would. I know you'd let your father-in-law call your kids his. Come on now, put yourself in Asanat's shoes for a second. This is a weird story. Finally, as the book of Genesis ends, Joseph is about to die, but before he does, he makes his brothers promise to take his bones from Egypt to the promised land. But Asenath? What about her bones? Or maybe more accurately, due to the fact that she is an Egyptian, what about her mummy? As Will Gaffney points out. We don't know anything about it. There's no plan mentioned for her burial in the promised land. After her initial mention in Genesis 41 and the story of her giving birth to two sons, Asenath just fades into the background. And for these reasons, we might be excused for reading over her or reading past her, for leaving her in perpetual passivity and relegating her to the status of a minor character who is named, but who has no volition, no agency, no will. We might be excused with leaving her bones in Egypt, so to speak. But in this video, I'd like to push back against that tendency, and I'd like to argue that her inclusion in the story, however brief it is, is notable for a number of reasons. Three, in fact. First, as an African woman, Asenath's inclusion in the story, it represents a fulfillment of divine promises made to Abraham. The first 11 chapters of Genesis, it's, it's a train wreck. Things start out nice with creation, but then once we hit Genesis 3 and uh, Adam and Eve's removal from the garden, everything just kind of goes down a spiral. It's, it's, it's a bit of a, of a train wreck here in, in these first 11 chapters. And it's not until Genesis 12 when Yahweh calls Abram, when, when Yahweh begins to uh, start over, I guess you could say. And he says to Abram, go from your country, from your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. Yahweh continues, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This promise, it, it serves as as the backbone for the entire narrative of the Old Testament. You could say it serves as the backbone for the entire narrative of the Bible. But even still, we tend to read the Old Testament as an exclusive document, as if God's intentions were solely focused on Israel. I understand where this line of thought comes from, and I, I certainly don't want to downplay the difficulties of the Old Testament story. It is often violent against other peoples. It's often patriarchal and diminishing to certain characters, namely females. It's often, well, <clears throat> it's often exclusive. But from the very beginning, the redemptive plans of God, they extend beyond this single family line, beyond Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and it extends beyond them to include all people on earth. So Jacob says to Joseph, his son in Genesis 48, God Almighty appeared to me in the past. 
And God Almighty appeared to me in the land of Canaan, and there he blessed me and said to me, I'm going to make you fruitful, and I'm going to increase your numbers. I will make you a community of peoples. The goal is, is to bless all people. The goal for Israel is to be a light to the nations. The goal is inclusion. For some readers, this is why in that very problematic passage where Asenat is seemingly absent or notably silent when Jacob is adopting or claiming his Egyptian grandkids Manasseh and Ephraim, this is why he does that, because he is or will become a community of peoples and his Egyptian grandkids demonstrate the fulfillment of that or the beginning of the fulfillment of that. This is why he allots them an inheritance along with his own sons. These two kids of Joseph and Asenath, they become two of the tribes of Israel. Will Gaffney writes, The people of Israel from Sarai and Abram, who come from Ur of the Chaldeans, foreign territory, from them all the way to Ephraim and Manasseh, these two kids of Joseph and, and Asenath, Israel is a product of a multicultural, multi-ethnic, and multilingual melange. But I'm not so confident that many of us think of these boys as, as African. I'm also not so confident that many of us think of Israel as a multicultural or multi-ethnic or even multilingual group. Instead, I think this fact is largely lost on us, which is not only detrimental to our faith, to our history, to our story, it's also potentially dangerous. In our polarized world, we tend to draw lines of exclusion, lines of who's in and who's out, lines that are, are likely drawn around people that look like us and think like us and act like us and live like us. This tendency to exclude, it impacts our awareness of and our celebration of Israel as a multicultural, multi-ethnic, and multilingual melange. And even if we are able to cut through those misgivings, those misreadings, I'm not always certain how it impacts our practice within the church. Because let's face it, we have a penchant for policing other people's supposedly inferior theologies. In white majority churches, there is often an ease with which we attempt to play the role of white savior as we drive into select housing developments to deliver food without developing relationships and without even thinking about the systemic realities that are impacting those very same housing developments. There's also our continued practice of colonialism. That is, the attempt to make other cultures and ethnicities assimilate to what we deem to be the dominant culture. In this case, it would be making people assimilate to the dominant culture and practices of the American church. Asenath has a word for us to consider here. In fact, all week, I've been attempting to weigh if Asenath's effective removal from the lineage of the people of faith is 
is due to the reasons uh, that we've cited, the, the circumstantial factors of her passivity in the patriarchal text or her lack of prominence in the story, the fact that she is a minor character, or if there's something more that's, that's pushing that along. Have we, along with Jacob, claimed her kids and removed her from the story? I, I know. I know that she's a minor character. I know that she is only featured in, in a handful of verses. But as we often talk about at TRP, when we read the Bible, we bring all sorts of invisible but really weighty interpretive baggage with us to the process of reading the Bible. And we would be silly to deny the role that our age and our gender and our ethnicity and our culture and our experiences and our background and our education and our politics and our family history and our socioeconomic status, we would be silly to deny the role that all of that plays in our reading of the Bible and in our understanding of the Christian faith. I, I know that for me, I probably wouldn't think about the role of an African woman in the story of the people of God unless it was overt in the story, which it isn't here, or unless someone pointed it out to me, which they have. This is why it's so important that we include diverse readers at the table, readers who will emphasize other aspects of the stories that we are, are consuming, readers who will help us question our own presuppositions, that invisible and weighty baggage that we bring with us to the task of interpretation, R readers who sit around this table who will help us to question our perceived and privileged role in the story because we like to think that we can insert ourselves in the role of the protagonist. We like to think that we can insert ourselves in the role of the good characters in the story. But oftentimes, we are the elite. We are the, uh, the powerful. We are the oppressors. We need to be in community with readers who will remind us of Israel's multi-ethnic status and makeup and the goal that's at the heart of the very Bible that we read, the very faith that we profess, the goal of blessing the entire world. Related to this, Asenath's inclusion in the story, it corrects the misperception that the inclusion of African peoples in the family of God is a late addition. In the early chapters of Genesis, there's this really strange story about Noah. It's, it's past the bit where the world is flooded and um, God recreates through Noah and his family, restarts everything. It's past that, and, and Noah has gotten off the boat. He's planted a vineyard, and he's waited the few years that it takes for a vineyard to be able to produce grapes that could potentially become wine, and he, he creates his own wine. Noah becomes a vinter in this story, and then he gets naked and completely trashed. And while this is happening, one of his kids, his name is Ham, it says he sees his father's nakedness. Whatever that means, scholars have a lot of fun attempting to unpack what this means for him to see his father's nakedness. We do know that in the, the next uh, few lines, the brothers of Ham, in order to avoid this, they kind of lock arms and they, they put some sort of a blanket between them. They walk backwards and they lay it over their father's nakedness. But still, there, there's a lot of... Uh, 
a lot of ambiguity here. Either way, when Noah wakes up from his drunken stupor, he uh, finds out what has happened to him, what his youngest son, it says, had done to him, which is a bit suggestive. And he says, cursed be Canaan. Weird, because he's talking to Ham. And what he's saying to Ham is, your kid Canaan is going to be cursed because of this act that you have uh, perpetrated upon me. So cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. Now, in the 19th century, and beyond in some spaces, there was a reading of this story that claimed Noah's curse of Ham, which was really Noah's curse of Ham's son Canaan, was actually a curse of African ancestry. It was a curse against black skin. Activist and author Jamar Tisby summarizes this blight on American religion, saying pro-slavery advocates use these verses to make a biblical case that black people, as descendants of Ham, belonged in a state of slavery. And for many Americans, this belief in the judgment of God against African peoples, in their mind, it not only legitimized slavery, but it legitimized further abuse of black and brown bodies, further dehumanization of them. Uh, in, In the minds of some, this toxic thinking. It continued in the postbellum South, and it legitimized, again, in their thinking, lynching and Jim Crow laws and segregation and social hierarchies. This this misreading of Noah's curse on Ham's kids is is, is so egregious, it's so mind-boggling, it's so rage-inducing that it doesn't need to be dismantled line by line because we can all see how patently ridiculous it is. But Would it have existed if Asanat's inclusion in the story as an African woman was more prominent? Even even if this particular biblical interpretation of the curse of Ham or Canaan has gone away, we still have a problem because people continue to be racist and the church is not immune from that. In fact, Tisby's book uh, that I cited a few moments ago, it's a complete treatment of uh, uh, the American church's complicity in racism. And his examples, they continue well beyond uh, the African slave trade. It, it, It continues way beyond that to the present day, which is so sad because of the clear teaching of the image of God in every human and the clear ridiculousness of these pro-slavery interpretations of the Bible that don't hold any water. But still, racism and white supremacy, they have not gone away. In a recent interview on the tenacity and bold witness of the black church, Tisby says this, "I, I don't worry too much about the black church as long as there is racism Within the white church, there will always be a black church. And perhaps, perhaps Asenath's story could function as an important and necessary reminder to white readers that it's not Africans who are late in their inclusion in the story, but it's actually white readers who are late additions to the story. In his book, 
Reading While Black, Esau Macaulay writes, Jacob sees the brown flesh and African origin of, of these kids, of Joseph and Asenath's kids, and he sees them as the beginning of God's fulfillment of his promise to make Jacob a community of different nations and ethnicities. And for that reason, Macaulay argues, he claims these two boys as his own. These two boys become two of the tribes of Israel. Egypt and Africa are not outside of God's people. African blood flows into Israel from the very beginning as the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Macaulay also includes this line, which I think is important for us to consider. He says, as a black man, when I look to the biblical story, I do not see a story of someone else in which I find myself by some feat of imagination. Instead, God's purposes, they include me as an irreplaceable feature along with my African ancestors. The African matriarch, Asenath, even if we pause for only a few moments over her inclusion in this story, she corrects this ignorance that we bring to the text so often. Third, I think the story of Asenath is worth our consideration for what it doesn't say as well. And here, this is this is going to be a, a, a maybe a bit of reading in. I'm going to uh, be reading against the grain. She doesn't speak in the story, but what is she thinking? She isn't presented in the story as a character with agency, but what what would she do? As we've already seen, the the story of Jacob's claim on his Egyptian daughter-in-law's children, it can be read positively, as Macaulay has, has done. It shows Jacob's inclusion of these other ethnic groups into the family of Israel as, as a fulfillment of God's promises. It can be read as, as the beginning of this fulfillment of Israel as a multi-ethnic, multinational family. But womanist scholar Will Gaffney writes, how does Asenath feel about Joseph's family? How does she feel about Jacob's claim on her children? Does she see it as an, as an attempt to erase her identity in her children? Moms, I'm curious, can you provide words for Asenath? Parents, caregivers, can, can you provide words for Asenath in, in this story? Is there a meditation here for us to consider? The Bible says nothing of Asenath's larger story, either before, during, or after Joseph. It, it mentions her, and then it just moves on. In Jewish interpretive tradition, this gap in the narrative, it presented a prime opportunity to imagine Asenath's story, which is exactly what they did. They wrote an entire book about it. It's called Joseph and Asenath. And in this story, they imagine Asenath converting to Judaism, renouncing her Egyptian idols, renouncing the religions of her father, renouncing uh, the, uh, the ways that she has practiced. In fact, a large portion of the first half of the story is actually devoted to Asenath's ritual grief and her prayer of confession and repentance in order to become, I guess you could say, a follower of Yahweh and in order to become the wife of Joseph. 
Now, this story is not included in the Bible. It's part of what is known as the pseudepigrapha. But I wonder if what we see here is an invitation. It demonstrates that there is room for us to imagine Asanat's role as a wife and a mom, to imagine her response to the claiming of her kids, to ask pointed questions of the Bible's patriarchal context. It maybe invites us to read against the grain a bit and imagine what it looks like now for there to be no male and no female in Christ and how that impacts our family systems, our marriages, our parenting. The story of Asanat, as brief as it is, it's compelling. If we allow it, it teaches us, it instructs us, it challenges us. It could correct misperceptions that have caused irreparable damage within the church. It it invites our consideration theologically as well as ethically. It challenges many of us at the core of who we are, of of how we read, of, of who we overlook, of how we process our faith, and of how we live in the world. It's just a few verses. It's a few verses that haven't received much attention, which might be telling, maybe not. But I also wonder if the story of Asanat could serve another purpose. Because as we sit here and as we attempt to find a place for ourselves in the family of God, many times we feel as though we don't belong. Many times we feel as though there has not been a chair pulled out for us at this banqueting feast of the family of God. But these small reminders of the surprise inclusion of people like Asanat in the family, they should also remind us that through Jesus Christ, we have all had a chair pulled out for us. We have all had an invitation that says, wherever you are, whoever you are, there is room for you here. I hope that this talk isn't just a self-reflective self-assessment on our own prejudice and, and bias. I hope it is that, but I also hope it goes one step beyond maybe to allowing everyone to experience this inclusion, to experience this love, to experience this acceptance, this welcome, to experience the hope that we have through Jesus. This is but a foretaste of how all of the peoples of the world are blessed through the line of Abraham, which as Christians we believe has reached its full culmination in the person and work of Jesus. And now as we sit on the other side of Easter, we are faced with this invitation as well to accept, to become part of this family, to realize that God has invited us, has included us, has welcomed us. Perhaps Asanat, perhaps she invites us in as well.